0: Well, good afternoon everyone and welcome to BibleQuest.org or .tv however you want to type it in. We're glad you able you're we're glad you are able to join us this afternoon on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Um, I'm Drew DeGrotto, your host and in a minute I'll be bringing in the panelists. To, to talk about our discussion today. but while we are going through the topic today, uh, if any of you in the audience coming in on the Zoom app or on the Facebook page, please enter your comments and questions in the appropriate box or window uh, so that we can address them and we'll be monitoring monitoring them during the program. Um, and if during the week or any time of the day if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, go to biblequest.tv, the easier way to remember it, I guess. And go to the you'll find the forum page to contact us and put in your questions or comments there. Please help us coming up with these topics. Although we we have a plethora of topics we can be talking about, we do like to hear from you to uh, have our discussions uh on, on this Tuesday afternoon. So let me with that said, let me bring in our panelist, Steven Rouse. How are you doing, Stephen? In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania.
1: Yes, sir. Coming to you live from Harrisburg.
0: Good to uh, see doing you. Doing well, Drew. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Another one from Pennsylvania down near the Gettysburg area. I'm not sure if you live in Gettysburg, but I know you work with the Gettysburg Church. Jonathan, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, I live just southeast of Gettysburg, right out of town. So Very I'm nice
0: historical well. town. I've been there through there once myself. And Scott Smeltzer, our program director, also from the Gettysburg area. Glad to have you here today, Scott. Good to be here. Good to see you. So we're going to be going and discussing uh, some of the things in the book of Haggai and Scott, you're going to bring us up to speed on that, which I have to confess, I don't recall ever studying that book. So I am really at a loss. I mean, I went through it again, this went through it this morning and there's some very good things in there. And um, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be asking questions. Want to know what's going on when you guys are talking about it, and uh, so I'm going to pummel you with these kinds of questions. So, Scott, where are we going to start? Why don't you bring us up to speed on it?
3: All right. Well, I'm going to set in a Bible timeline so we can just kind of see where this lands in history, and then Jonathan will start us in on the text itself. And also, if somebody can have Ezra five ready, just read the first few verses because that'll help with with the timeline up there. That'll help. Just said, just the first few verses there in Ezra 5, where we we'll see these four main characters. Uh, so, let's get our timeline up here, and there it is. All right, so we've got, oh, well it's animated, I didn't realize that, that's fine. So we've got there the flood, the Tower of Babel, Abraham, and then the promises to Abraham. And then we've got his sons Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has the 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite. He ends up in Egypt as a slave and then at the right hand after his death they become enslaved. God sends Moses to deliver them and at Mount Sinai, of course, they receive the law, the Ten Commandments and other laws pertaining to the sanctuary and such. You have the tabernacle. There's the 40 years wandering because they're unfaithfulness. Finally, they get to go in with Joshua. Bad times during the judges, the last judge points, as God directs him to, Saul is king, he's rejected, David is king, he, his son is going to build the temple, which is physically fulfilled in Solomon, who builds the temple, and it was a glorious temple. Um, after his death, he's got a foolish son, Rehoboam, the kingdom is going to be split in two. You have the north is Israel, the south is Judah. Uh, and during this time period, the prophets prophesied, both here and afterwards. They warn Israel about judgment. They warn Judah about judgment. The temple is destroyed. They're taken away into Babylonian captivity. Cyrus's decree sends them back. Zerubbabel goes back, and he and Haggai and others help build the temple. Ezra will later come back and reteach the law. Nehemiah will come back, and he will build the walls. And the people are looking forward to the Messiah. And we come to the New Testament. And by the way, this timeline's available uh, in my side three-minute Bible study. If you'd like to use it sometime, John the Baptist says Jesus—he's the Lamb of God—that's going to take away the sins of the world. The Gospels give his teaching, the selection of the twelve, the miracles that he does, and at the end of his life, he will be instituting the Lord's Supper the night before he dies. He will die on the cross. Uh, The the disciples will flee, Uh, he dies on the cross, and then he's resurrected, you have the empty tomb on Sunday, he's risen from the grave, and then he ascends 40 days later to the right hand of God. On the day of Pentecost, uh, we have the miracle and the gospel being announced there to the Jews, Peter preaches them, and 3,000 are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins and the church grows and it's growing very fast and exponentially. Persecution begins against it very hard. And one of the leaders of that is a man named Saul of Tarsus, but then he's converted and he becomes a Christian himself, one of the apostles, commissioned by the Christ. And he writes a lot of the epistles that we've got. And so that's the- Scott,
0: Scott, Scott, I got to catch my breath. You just went through what, about 2000 years in three minutes? Yes. Wow. So, what year are we looking at with
3: Haggai? You, you went through that chart fast, but I didn't see any year dates. I did not remember that the screen I pulled up was animated. Right. So it's a, it went a little faster than a minute ago. So, we've got to go back and I'm going to try. No, no, to...
0: don't go through it again, but just off the top of your head, what year are we looking at, BC? Uh,
3: all right. So, Cyrus's decree to go back and rebuild the temple is 539. The people come back, I believe, in. Did they start the temple in, no, 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 no. What year was Cyrus decree? 519 yeah. or 539? All of a sudden I've lost my numbers. Uh, I believe it's 539, 538. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they come back and they start building the temple, I believe, in 520?
2: Yeah, let now. me,
1: here, I've got a, another timeline we can use
2: Excellent. here just real quick.
1: All right, so here is another timeline with some dates um let me get this up all right so uh the old testament you got the divided kingdom israel the north jude in the south uh the date we want to remember is 586 is when uh, nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed solomon's temple that glorious building uh you got 70 years give or take of captivity and then the return from captivity and rebuilding the temple starts in the year 538 with the decree of Cyrus. Then there is about a 10-year period of time, eight years after that, where the work stops, uh, where they tell some lies about the people, they slander them, and the king sends a decree and says stop building, You know, it sounds like you're going to rebel. So the work stops for about 10 years, and then it's about 520, that Haggai and Zechariah are the two prophets can come in and say, hey, let's get back to work. Um, you know, you don't need to be dwelling in your nice houses while God's temple is in ruins. So we're about the year 520 after about a 10 year period of stoppage on the work of the temple.
0: So somebody stopped it from high up, but it, the people also were in agreement with stopping it. They were happy with
3: that. No, it, it was the, the Samaritans enemies and stuff. Um, or what, no, I'm thinking more of the time of Yamara, but there were some yeah, critics who said they're rebelling, you know, and and uh, this city. And,
2: go ahead. Yeah, King Artaxerxes, they they appeal to King Artaxerxes, who's one of the Persian kings, and he makes a decree that they have to stop building the temple, okay. and they end up not building the temple. This is back in Ezra chapter 4, and they stop building the temple, like Stephen said, for about 10 years. And the last verse in Ezra chapter 4 says the work on the house, this is Ezra 4 verse 24, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Um, and then in chapter 5 of Ezra, verse 1, is when Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene and, and are prophesying.
3: Actually, this is little known. Uh, it's not in most manuscripts, but from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we learn that this was, uh, it was stopped because of restrictions placed by the COVID-538 break. COVID-BC-538. That's right. That's right. Um, but then the characters that get it re-going, you've got these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and then you've got Zerubbabel, uh, and then there's another fellow, uh, Joshua, Yeshua, that'll be mentioned. So if somebody read those first few verses, Bessar 5, and then we'll get into, oh, and was the temple completed at 515, if I remember correctly? Is that the right? About place? about
1: 515, yeah. Right. It takes four or five years for them to to build the temple. Yeah.
3: And so with uh, just very brief introduction from Ezra 5, we'll be ready for Jonathan to start us from the text of Haggai.
1: Ezra 5, 1 and 2 says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So in that text, you've got uh, the two main leaders of the people are Zerubbabel, who serves as kind of a governor of the people, uh, leading them politically, if you will. And then religiously, you have uh, Joshua um, or Joshua, just a different spelling of the same name, who is the high priest during that time. And then the two prophets are the two that we're reading about here Haggai and Zechariah. And it's good to read those books together, but that uh, gets us to the text.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, there in Ezra, seven, or in Ezra 5 and also in, at the end of Ezra 4, it gives the timestamp of the second year of Darius the king. And that's where Haggai starts out. So in Haggai chapter 1, uh, I'll just read the first few verses here. Haggai 1 verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And he said, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that i may." Take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each one busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and uh, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." So you got this picture here, like we briefly talked about in Ezra, Um, the people came back under Zerubbabel. And in Ezra chapter three, they start building the temple, they lay the foundation. And there's some various different reactions to that. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. But some people are really happy and joyful and singing and shouting for praise. And others are more in a mournful type of state and comparing that to the previous temple, Solomon's temple and how Solomon's temple was so glorious. But this what they're working on isn't really matching up. So some are are upset about that. Um, But somewhere along the way, various different people are opposing them. And Artaxerxes, the king, puts a stop to the building of the temple. Um, and it goes that way for roughly about 10 years, then Haggai is sent, and the Lord is going to start identifying some different problems that the Israelites are having, in their attitude about building his house. And so in verse two, um, what's the attitude of the people? What do you guys see the attitude of the people as it relates to building God's house? And what's that compared to?
0: They're saying like, uh, it's really not, we're not ready to build it yet.
2: Yeah, it's not time. It's, it's not time to build it yet. Instead, what are they focused on? Themselves yeah themselves and more specifically
0: are they wait it it sounded like to me like I said I have not read studied this book but is it is it saying that these guys were living in a plush lifestyle
2: yeah i think so they have these panelled houses that they're 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 busy building their own houses making themselves more comfortable building themselves up meanwhile god's house is laying in ruins mm-hmm. uh and god two times in this section tells the people of israel consider your ways, which I think is a really, really fascinating phrase. Um, And it happens in verse five, uh, or excuse me, in verse six. Yeah, verse five, there it is, verse five and six. And then also again in verse seven, God will tell them to consider their ways. That first time in verse five, um, God has just asked the question, is it time for you in verse four to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now consider your ways. And what are the ways that God is having them consider in verse six? Their their lifestyle.
1: uh, Well, yeah, and the consequences of their actions that they're not, basically, there's been a drought, uh, a famine that's happened because they've not prioritized the Lord and his things. And so Mm -hmm. they're sowing, but they're not harvesting much. Um, And he says, if you earn wages, you're putting them into a bag with holes. So yeah. it's uh, not very effective. You're doing a lot of work, but it's not coming to anything. It's yeah. like
0: you have a, I remember my mother used to say, you got a hole in your pocket. I give you money and the next day it's gone. Yeah,
2: You're just right. wasting
0: it. You're just blowing it away.
2: Right. So it's really interesting. So you've got this picture here of the people of Israel are supposed to be having God dwell with them, building his house, having a relationship with him. And the first thing that God does is he comes to them and he identifies that they're not interested in doing that. They're not interested in building God's house. Instead, they're interested in their own lives. But think about your own life think about how your life is going. And the point is your life isn't going really well. Um, You're not able to collect a lot of food. You're not able to keep yourself warm. All of your money is kind of going into bags with holes. You're suffering, you're struggling through all these different things. And God will elaborate on that in just a few verses. Um, But I think at the beginning, he's identifying for the people of Israel, where their heart really is in relation to how they feel about God and God dwelling with them. Can can I ask Um, a question, John? Go
0: ahead. I might have been misunderstanding that um, they're suffering because I was, I was on the impression they're suffering because they're doing what they want. They have everything they think they want, but it's never enough. They're not satisfied or are they suffering because they don't have enough?
2: Well, I think later on, God, will talk about exactly why they're suffering. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah. And, in verse six shows
3: us they're not just living comfy lives of plenty, plenty. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not a good time of prosperity. Things are not going real well, but the focus of their labor is on their own homes. Okay. They, they've let these they've let these uh, even stop their work. and it's like, well, we can't do that, but they're busy busy trying to rebuild their lives and get their own homes and even get their houses paneled inside. And that's that's on the up, but they've left, as it says, this house in ruins.
0: And okay, that that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And so then God will elaborate on that some more as to why that's happening, why why they're struggling so much, um, why things aren't really amounting to as much as they would like it to. And he says in verse seven, again, consider your ways. And he gives them some instructions starting in verse eight. Uh, He tells them, you need to go up, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, do all of that. And in verse nine, he starts talking about why they were struggling so much. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. So God identifies the the source of their problems, the reason why you're putting money into bags with holes, the reason why you can't keep warm, the reason why you don't have enough food and all that is because I'm blowing it away. God is not allowing them to get all this bounty and, and, and have this kind of elaborate lifestyle. He's the one that's kind of making their lives more difficult. And why? Why is he doing that?
0: Because his house is in ruins, while you guys are playing with your own stuff.
2: Yeah. So, what does that show you about God? He not uh, content first priority.
1: Say that oh, again. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, Stephen and then Scott. Go ahead.
1: He he expects us to be first priority, and he expects to be made first priority by us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to make him our priority.
2: Yeah. And what did you say, Scott? Uh, he's
3: not going to be ignored. He's yeah. Not- He's not going to settle for a minor position.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. God is the priority, and he should be the priority in our lives, and in the people of Israel's lives. And he's not going to settle for anything less than that. He expects to be first, and if he's not first, there are consequences um, to that. And you see that played out in the people of Israel's lives. Um, One other thing that I think is interesting to consider about this, and I want to be careful how I say this, but this is a fascinating chapter to me, that God actually says here in the Bible, he is making the people of Israel's lives more difficult. And I think that that's an interesting concept to think about. Now, I don't want to... um, like speak for God in different situations, but whenever there are hardships that happen in our lives, some of those hardships are self-inflicted on us. Um, but sometimes things happen that are hard in our lives that could be there as a source to open up our eyes and reconsider our ways, like God is telling Israel to do here, and reprioritize and realize, you know what? I've been neglecting God in my life. I've been neglecting what God wants me to do, and I need to re-reprioritize my life and put God on the top again, so that way me and God will have a good relationship again, and I'll be able to reap the blessings that God wants me to reap. Now that doesn't, that's not to say that every time something bad happens in our life, that we're doing something wrong. There are plenty of examples in the Bible where that's not the case. Think about Job. Job was a righteous man before God, and he suffered a lot and he lost a lot. And it wasn't because he wasn't prioritizing God. There were other things that were happening behind the scenes that contributed to that. So that's not Every single time, but I think something to consider. And it's interesting that God brings that point up here with Israel uh, in this moment in history. You guys have comments or thoughts or anything else about that?
3: Just this, under under what you said about not reading too much and presuming too much about when things go badly. For instance, suppose there's a drought in Adams County. It could be that God is very, very displeased with me. It could be that he's displeased with everybody around me. And when there's a drought, I'm stuck in the drought too. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego get hauled away into captivity, even though it wasn't their fault personally. And the Job illustration is important. But when things are going badly, and then the prophet of God says, yes, this is why things are going badly, then then you know it. Your answer.
2: Yeah, good point. Any other points you guys wanna make on those first 11 verses or any of those ideas?
0: Also, I wanna remind the audience to chime in anytime with more questions or thoughts and comments as we're going along.
1: And just that the things that they're distracted with are not things that are in and of themselves bad. It's not wrong to work on your home. It's not wrong to focus on that at some point. But the question here is that of priorities. Uh, sometimes we feel like, well, the choice God gives us is either between like doing good or doing wickedness. Well, we need to not do wickedness for sure, but sometimes it can be things that are good in and of themselves, but if they become our priority and eclipse our work for the Lord specifically, that's where we get in trouble.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Many any of you heard Gardner Hall
3: speak, do uh, his sermon on the difference between important things and necessary things? But he he makes the point that Stephen just made, and he uses an example from the New Testament. Uh, It's a couple of women, and one of the women is doing something really good and important, but the other one is doing what's necessary, what's more important, Who, who are the women?
0: Martha and Mary.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the one was getting food ready, you know, for Jesus and the disciples. Is that good?
0: Yeah, that's something that's response takes responsibility.
3: And she's complaining because her sister, Mary, uh, Mary, is sitting there listening to Jesus teach. And she says, Aren't you gonna make her help me serve? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are
1: worried and troubled about many things.
3: Yeah. And I think maybe the King James says busy about many things. Uh then think of the people here fixing their houses up. He said, but one thing's necessary, and Mary's chosen the better part.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Before be- becoming a Christian, I always looked at religion as a part-time job, part-timeness. I, ha- I had other parts of my life, my job, my playtime, and yes, once in a while, church Sunday, and it was just part of life. It wasn't necessary. It was just part of life. That's the way I was raised, I guess, and thought of it. But according to what we're reading here, that's not what the Lord wants.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so, in this next section, there's uh, some really encouraging reading. I think you don't get a lot of encouraging responses from Israel when you're reading through the prophets, but you do every once in a while. And here in Haggai one, you get a very encouraging response from the people of Israel. Why? So what kind of response?
0: Read- what kind of response are you talking about, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, a lot of the time the response, so we'll talk about just a few of them. Uh, some of the prophets they threw into pits, some of them they threatened to kill, some of them they threw in prison, some of them they tore up the letters that they wrote to them and threw them in fire. Um, those are some of the typical responses that Israel would have when they're told, you need to consider your ways. But they go the opposite direction here, which is really cool. So when do you guys want to read verse 12 through the end of the chapter?
1: Haggai 1 verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius the
2: king. Yeah, so that's totally opposite response of what you would expect from typical Israel. Um, they respond favorably, and they begin to obey, um, and they listen to Haggai, and they listen to Zerubbabel and Joshua, their leaders. Um, and I think that's really important to see because uh, that that is an important lesson that I see anyway. Sometimes you kind of assume that people respond in their typical way and that's how they're going to respond all the time so like when you read through the book of Judges it's very discouraging to see Israel's attitude and how they feel about God and how they typically respond. You read through the kings and it's still discouraging. They have generations and generations of just discouraging responses. And then you get to Haggai hundreds of years later, and God comes with the same message that he's been telling them all along. You need to be doing my work. I'm their priority. The message hasn't changed, but their response is different this time. And I think that's important to remember. Like people might have pretty discouraging responses over and over and over. But sometimes all people need is just somebody to come and exhort them. And maybe that's the time that it opens up their eyes, and they actually change and start doing what they need to do. So there's never too many times to remind someone about the work that they need to be doing for God. And it's cool to see at least one time. And there are other times that Israel responds favorably as well. But at least once Israel does listen and do what they need to do. So that's cool to see.
3: Think about historically also as Jonathan's pointed out, they do respond better this time. And I think there's historically two reasons we can look at. Uh, what have the previous 70 years, of course, there's been some time here in between where the Temple Black shouldn't got delayed and that type of thing. They've been discouraged and held back. But in the bigger picture, they just spent 70 years where? Yeah, so they had, they had a pretty big timeout share there. And uh, they've they've learned the lesson from that. Secondly, at the end of 70 years, which Jews would be the ones most likely to go with Zerubbabel back to build the temple? There's always an element of Israel and of the Jews, which is wanting to be like the nations round about them and accepting the paganism round about them. If you're of that ilk, and you've been in Babylon for 70 years, or you were born in Babylon during the 70 years, if you're pretty comfortable with paganism, what did you probably do at the decree of Cyrus? Yeah, go you back to be, Babylon. Yeah. You They're
2: might stay, be comfortable you're, staying you're, where you are.
3: You're, you're stay, you know, stay there. Who would be the ones that would be most likely to be willing to make the
2: trek back and rebuild? The ones that wanted to restore yeah. their, their relationship with God.
3: Yeah. It? But then they got back and then they were hindered and hit some roadblocks and they've kind of gotten distracted and not getting done what needs to be done. And so you have this reminder and they really do step up.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think you also see the value there in uh, exhorters in God's work. Um, exhorters are really, really important. The people that come and remind you that you need to keep your head down and keep working. That's a valuable asset to God's people to have those people. And there are lots of different, you know, skills and talents and gifts that people have being exhorters, being uh, like uh, revelation or, or not revelation. Romans 12 talks about those different gifts that are there. And the exhorters are mentioned in there as well. Um, sometimes that one person that's there pushing you to do God's will can get the ball rolling and everyone will jump on board, which is cool to see. All right, any other comments, thoughts you guys have or, or comments from the audience or anything on that section? All right, let's look at um, chapter two. <clears throat> so chapter two, um, they've, started building the temple, they're working on building the temple, and they get another roadblock um, that they're going to have to face. And I think God kind of anticipates this roadblock that they're going to face here. So Haggai 2 in verse 1 says, in the seventh month, on the, 24, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, And I will shake all the nations so that all so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So um, at the beginning there, um, they're building the temple. And they're rebuilding it, uh, rebuilding God's house. And the word of the Lord comes again from Haggai. And he's talking to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, to all of the people. And what's his first question?
1: Uh,
2: who, who is there? Who is here? Anybody see
1: the former house?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Did anybody see the former house? What's that all about? What's the what's the point of that question?
1: If you read... uh the book of Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 you know that when they laid the foundation of this new temple uh, again it's going to be a whole lot smaller than Solomon's temple then not as glorious not as big not as impressive and when they build that in Ezra 3 verse 12 it says that some people shouted aloud for joy and some people were weeping because they had seen the previous temple before it was destroyed Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't even the sound was so loud that they couldn't tell the the, the weeping apart from the joyful shouting. Uh, so it's a, a really a mixture of reactions
2: with this new temple that's yeah. being built.
0: So yeah. are you saying and, that that verse three then is a little sarcasm?
2: Um, maybe not sarcasm, but maybe calling back to what the the older people had seen before. And remember the first time when you all started building the temple, you were demoralized because you realized, This isn't going to be anywhere close to as great as Solomon's temple was. And I think there's an important lesson to see here of how God responds to that attitude. And I think that's an attitude that God's servants can still get today of when we're doing God's work, but Satan likes to kind of whisper in our ear and make us believe that the work that you're doing isn't going to amount to really anything. It's not going to be that great. Um, and I think that's how the people of Israel would feel about this temple. You know, remember what Solomon built. That was huge. That was extravagant. There was gold everywhere. It, w- it was amazing. And then look at what you're doing. Like, that's nothing. That, that's not, there's no comparison to that. And like what God says here, you know, how do you see the temple that you're building now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The people of Israel would maybe be tempted to think this temple that we're working on now is worthless, is nothing here. But what does God instruct them to do anyway? Keep on working. Yeah, keep working anyway. Keep doing it. I'm with you. This is what I want. And then at the end of the chapter, he tells them, I'm going to fill it with glory. And that this house that you're building now is going to be more glorious than the first house. There in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And so God is going to be working behind the scenes. And through the little bit of work that they're doing, He's going to be able to bring about this glorious house and bring glory uh, into the house that they wouldn't be able to do themselves. But I think that that's cool to see God's response and how how we can really easily have this short-sighted nature and think that the little things that we do aren't really making a big difference. And so we can be tempted to not do the little things that God wants us to do when God is using the little things that Israel is doing here to bring about his purpose and to glorify himself and bring more glory um, to, to his, his name here. Um, do you guys have comments or thoughts on that or through that section?
3: Let's just have some, my comment on the messianic fulfillment of this, because, um, there, there's going to be things in, in Nehemiah's time when he's building the walls, and that's one of the temple walls. The, the nations are going to contribute to that. Uh, uh, Persia is going to, and, uh, the, the lumber is going to come from elsewhere and different things. Um, but where will we see the ultimate fulfillment of this? Uh the wealth of nations coming in in a in the temple becoming grander than before? Well, When's that to be let,
0: let me ask the question. In verse nine here, it says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Did that actually happen?
3: Well in that, we, in,
0: in that, with that particular physical house?
3: I, I doubt that it did. Now Herod will continue rebuilding uh, for the, on Zerubbabel's temple, and it's going to be really, really impressive, but uh, the, the greater glory is going to be, that, that's going to be destroyed shortly after Herod's time, the greater glory is going to be the temple that Jesus built. Right. He is the chief cornerstone, and nations come into it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And going back to Second Samuel 7, the house, he will build a house for my name, for that ultimate fulfillment in the church of Stephen.
1: Yeah, one passage that's helpful just to see that this language of the temple and God's city being rebuilt is a messianic image is Isaiah chapter 60. Um, and we'll read verses 11 through 14 briefly here. Isaiah 60, starting in verse 11. And this is speaking of Zion or Jerusalem. It says, Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, and to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so there's just one prophetic image of Isaiah uh, where he's talking about the coming messianic age and describes it like this city where the nations are bringing their wealth into the city and specifically beautifying the sanctuary, the place where God dwells, the temple. And ultimately, the people will be the temple. Uh, we'll see that in the new test in the New Testament. That uh, Ephesians chapter two, second P, uh, first Peter chapter two, that talk about us as living stones being built up into this spiritual temple, this place for God to dwell.
3: All right, We got eleven more minutes, and we've got about twelve more verses. So here we go. Um, Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month and the second day of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold uh, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So there is something that's not holy. Does touching this holy thing to it make it holy? And what's the priest's answer?
1: Nope.
3: Nope. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest said,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with the nation before me declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, For a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to a heap of wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day to the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So I want to come back and talk about this thing right here. Taking something clean and touching it to something unclean doesn't make the unclean thing clean. Or even just just regular stuff, it doesn't make it holy but taking something unclean and touching it to it does. Now I want to give two analogies and then I want to ask kind of a philosophical question. And I'd like if I can get two of you to debate this. And there's not going to be a right or wrong answer because it depends on what area you're looking at with the word. I'm going to ask the question, is good or evil more effective, more, um powerful more influential uh, yeah influential and depending on what aspect of it you look at you might answer it one way or another so somebody be thinking about volunteer to defend evils more influential and somebody take good and, and illustrate the different sides of that but the two illustrations real quick uh if you have an ink pen and we've all had this happen and the, it goes bad, and it's leaking ink everywhere. I put it in the pocket of my nice, clean, white shirt. What's going to happen?
0: Mm-hmm. Nice ink spot. That, yeah, I pen's
3: going to turn white. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The shirt <laughs> is not going to fix the leaky ink pen, is it? No, nope. the ink's still going to say dark, dark blue. Yeah, it, it's going to ruin. It's going to ruin that shirt. Okay, you've got you've got a little bitty car. Okay. You put one person with COVID, they're coughing with COVID in the car with three healthy people and they go for a road trip. Are the clean people going to heal the person with COVID? Absolutely not. Not the way that works. What's what's gonna happen most likely to all three of the people in the car and the the other guy has COVID?
1: They're
0: gonna get, get the COVID of course. So, but wait we, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute.
3: It does go. get rid of the flu. <laughs> <laughs> <Did you laughs> notice there's no flu today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um so in that kind of aspect, which is more powerful, good or evil? Evil. Bad in stuff. What, in what basis, in what ways is it more influential or effective in, in that way? It's
1: easier to tear something down than to build it up. It's easier to make something dirty than to make it clean.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, you had your hand up too.
2: Yeah, just before we we do that, there was a comment that came in on Facebook. TJ said um, back in the beginning of Haggai 2, it looks like God is saying that even if our work isn't glamorous, what really matters is whether God is with us. A good reminder for us because we don't have the physical temple at all, just our bodies as a temple. And even thankless work is valuable to God. Uh, I think that's a good point.
3: Oh, very good point. Very good. Very good. So, wow, if evil's that effective, if evil spread and and after all, who's uh, which which way leads to life? The broad way with the many, or a narrow way with few? Narrow. So why not just get on the broad way if if evil's more effective, if it spreads easier, if it's more effective in its spread and influence
2: on the reverse side you can make the argument that uh good and righteousness is more powerful than evil and so um paul will make kind of that argument in Romans chapter 12 at the end of the chapter he'll say do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good and so while it's maybe easier to tear something down the the weakness of evil is good (laughs) Um, you're going to be overcome by evil. But if you keep doing good, you keep, you know, persevering, you keep shining your light, light makes darkness go away. Darkness doesn't make light go away. So destruction is easy. But it's not good, because
3: it's destructive. That's why all of us in our lives, why? Why do we, you know, try to eat right and work out? Because it's good. Do we know that sooner or later, the laws of nature are gonna have its way with our body and we're gonna die? Yes, but that doesn't mean we should all lay down now and say, I'm not gonna bother to to be healthy. No, you do good. Why do you work on a house? Because it's good. Is the house gonna stand forever? No, but then why do we work on our souls? And now you get to something that stands forever. Good is powerful because it's better. And right. It's not as easy. It takes more work, but doesn't everything worthwhile take effort? Drew.
0: I'll give an example of where good is more influential than evil, I think. Uh, I was watching the news when the, those officers uh, down in Nashville presented what they went through and the, the hero, heroism. You look at that, you know, <laughs> You know, you look up to that. You want to emulate that. You, you, you want to be that yourself. But yeah. look at a bad guy that's sitting over here in jail because he killed and maimed, and, and he's going to, let's say, face forever in jail or, or death penalty. You're not looking at that bad, evil person and say, oh, I want to be like that. I want to You know, it doesn't work that way. But Very good. Where, but where does that come from?
3: because it's better because but, why it, is it better why why do we think that's better selfishness in the end is an ugly destructive thing unselfishness and godliness is more powerful because it produces good destruction is effective but it's not producing good yeah it's just destroying Jonathan.
2: we had a comment come in uh dan said uh first evil versus good is not a good question to be debated in 10 minutes (laughs) we could could talk about this for hours and hours and hours um but he said uh, where's your starting point what temptation is being used for one person uh temptation a will ruin them but person b will not falter as a general rule a good person giving evil a foothold will lead to ruin and an evil person who allows good a foothold will have a much more difficult time or difficult struggle to purify themselves um and it's easier to tear down than to build up i think those are those are some good points but maybe ultimately the the big point to make is if you're asking what what's better good or evil it, it kind of depends on what you mean by that good offers more long-term yeah. benefits it's it's ultimately going to be the thing yeah. that you desire more that has a, a better outcome yeah. but it's easier to give in to evil it's and that's hilarious. what i think yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of the point that Jesus makes. With you have the narrow, the narrow way, and the broad way. It's easier to go down the broad way. More people will do it. It takes more work and more of a struggle to go down the narrow way, but there's way more benefits
3: doing that. And if in the first or second quarter it looks like evils ahead, we also know what the Bible says is going to be the the scorecard at the end, right?
0: Well, boy, there's a, we could talk a lot more about this. Maybe we need to have another program on good and evil. and Why is it more popular that, that people want to uh, you know, emulate good? Where did that come from? And that's a question on where does morality come from? And that's beyond what we're talking today. But uh, yeah, I agree with Dan. That's 10 minutes to go through that. Not enough time.
3: And let's just read the closing verses here. We're the closing up time, but we were going to try to get to the end of the Yeah. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month to speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations, overthrow the chariots and the riders. horses and their rides to go down everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, uh, the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the end of the book.
2: All right. Um, well, thank you guys for your discussion through that. Thank you and the audience for your comments um through that. I think Haggai is a really, really cool book. And it's one of those books that I think gets overlooked a lot. A lot of times when you think about the prophets, that's not the desirable reading thing that a lot of people want to go through. But there's such valuable, I think, information in the prophets. Um, and, and you get some different insights into how God thinks about things and things that God does. Um, and there's just some really good lessons that that we can learn from reading through the prophets. Um, so thank you guys for discussing through that. Um, to our audience, if you guys have any more questions that you'd like us to discuss, any Bible topics or, or books that you'd like us to go over, um, we'd be happy to do that. You can submit those to BibleQuest.tv, and we will do that in our future shows that we have upcoming. But that's all we have for this week. And so we will see you all next week, Lord willing.